0: Welcome to the Consulting Growth Podcast. I'm Professor Joe Omani, a Professor of Consulting at Cardiff University and an advisor to consultancies that want to grow. If you'd like to find more out about me and access some free resources to help your consultancy grow, do please visit joeomani.com. That's J-O-E-O-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y dot Right. Welcome back to the Consultancy Growth Podcast. I am very pleased to be hosting Tim Redgate in this session. Now, Tim, we've known each other for twenty over 20 years now, but very occasionally got in contact. Um, and I believe we both had more hair and it was a slightly different color back in those days. It was a mirror
1: image today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Some time ago. Welcome, Tim. Nice to see you again.
1: Good to see you as well, Joe. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, it is. It must be, I think it was around 2001 when we worked together. Yep. Since then, apart from losing lots of hair and getting grey beards, (laughs) we've both gone on our separate journeys, you know, starting our own businesses as well and and things like that. Yeah.
0: yep. So Tim, you've um, I've got you on especially to talk about uh, sort of productization and developing software for boutiques, consulting firms, professional service firms. But before we jump to that, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today?
1: Sure. So after working together, as we did at, at 3, before it was 3, the, the mobile company, immediately after that, I founded a, a digital agency. So in the days when it was building flash websites and that sort of thing, and then that very much moved on to business that built lots of apps for mobile when that was the thing that everybody did. And then increasingly became very tech focused through that business. So building a lot of what I'd call sort of custom tech products custom software for large enterprises, startups and things like that. And really for the last four years, uh, so post that business, that was about 15 years of that business. And then post that, I've been working as an advisor stroke fractional strategic lead for tech services businesses and tech product companies. So typically working with the end clients of those businesses tend to be often startups or businesses within businesses where they're trying to do something a little bit different that yep. you know the shelf isn't cut cookie cutter. So they require that degree of customization and custom engineering, really.
0: Great. Thank you. And I guess the firm that you're most heavily involved with now is Actioned. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what they do and what you do for them?
1: Yeah, so Actioned is a is a tech services business. So we're about 90 people, largely engineering focused. So, you know, of the 90 people, 50 of those are are engineers, software engineers. So very technically focused. And the reason I spend most of my time on that business really is that it very much is the the delivery side of the strategy so if we're talking to an end client about how they might take an idea to market and either create a new business or create a new their business action is very much about and hence the name action it's about putting that into action and creating the thing so beyond the strategy
0: Okay, let's dive in a little bit to, I guess, what the listeners are going to be most interested in, which is around the sort of productization of people services, you know, people knowledge and that side of things. Now, before we get into how and what and why, I'd like to think a little bit strategically about it and get your view on this. Because a lot of consultancy or boutique owners, agency owners, look at with great envy the margins and the valuations of SaaS companies. And they think, well, you know, I should be doing SaaS. Now, I also know a lot of SaaS owners who look at consultancies and and think I could do with that predictable cash heavy revenue coming in. And I could do without these big investors jumping on my back every time I want to make a decision. So consultancies and other firms are thinking And there's been a lot of this in the last 10 years of the price of software development and no code, low code has happened. But it's a very difficult balance to get right strategically sometimes, you know, unless you're doing just sort of a because software is a very different thing to people. I'm guessing strategically, the question I'd like to ask is strategically, how should senior decision makers who are primarily focused on people and client relationships and trust and all the people, things that make consultancies work, how should they think about tech as a potential investment that they might make alongside all the other potential investments that they might make, including hiring more people?
1: It's obviously a few different lenses. So I've personally been in that situation where had a very people-led business. It was they were engineers, but effectively were, you know, you're selling their time and uh, Mm -hmm. just to end clients and had that similar dilemma of it was a boutique business. So we were 20 people, you know, had some big clients, and it was a nice predictable in lots of ways, but we knew that the was never going to be exciting as a sort of service-based business. So had it in our heads that we would spin out and we wanted to create a tech product. So that was a strategic decision based Mm -hmm. on excess. If that's the end goal, and, and that's the sort of bet that you're going to make, then that's the lens through which you view it. And therefore, you're looking yeah. at more as tech investment as a, as a potential exit vehicle. But I think, ultimately, the thing that I see, obviously, in, in consultancies, we see it in agents, specialist agencies, there's subject matter expertise that exists within those businesses. Usually, the start point of the product idea. It's like, I do this, I know this subject, Intimately and know it to a great level of detail and can spot an opportunity to productize. So that's yep. one obvious space where the strategy would say, well, do we have enough knowledge? Have we got enough of a gauge of the market and enough of a yep. gauge of whether this thing that we know is needed widely? Cool. Then there's clearly an opportunity. But there's also, I think, again, in a people-led business, and I've worked on, on on this with an HR consultancy, actually, over the last couple of years, where they had a process and a product in terms of it was a methodology and a framework through which mm. they go and, and consult on company culture, basically. And in that situation, the initial driver for productizing was really labor-intensive. They were going out and having to do, you know, face-to-face interviews across large businesses. They were gathering together through a range of survey monkey surveys, pulling it all into spreadsheets, number crunching what they were finding, and then putting together these big, long PowerPoint-driven reports to go Mm -hmm. and then back to the client. And so there was just an obvious advantage to productizing aspects of that and automating aspects. Well, we don't need to go and have all those face-to-face interviews. We'll have the ones yep. that matter, and we'll align our consultants with the high-value strategic thinking. But all of that number crunching, all of that data gathering, all of that visualization of data is the stuff that can be done instantly. On. I mean, using tech so there's i think you know you can view it through both lenses and in terms of one is do more with less yeah yeah more number of people and therefore it's just an efficiency yeah uh, and then the other is there's a potential for a product that will have a life of its own or will have its own value Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And then sort of in between that, I suppose, with the extreme being, okay, we spin it out as a separate business, which interestingly that HR consultancy did do, yeah. <laughs> um, you go that to the full extent of, okay, this is a SaaS platform, we're going to sell it and, to companies and, and hopefully one day exit uh, versus the, the sort of the efficiency end. And then in the middle of that, I guess you've got, yes, efficiency and technology, but then the proprietary nature of the technology you might build is also about going, does it make us more sticky with our clients? So by yeah. having a tool and that system, is it just another value? Add on top of our traditional business that says actually this makes us sticky, it means that they're not going to necessarily go to another consultancy because, Mm. on top of the knowledge and the people that work with day to day, we've got this added value through the tech. Yes,
0: yeah, I mean, it's I'm putting myself in the position of a um, of a say a boutique owner 50 to 100 people, and we're doing okay, we've got. 22% 22% margin, got reasonable growth, but I'm looking at these opportunities. One thing I have seen a lot as in an advisory position is a decision or seniors leaders will start up a IT project or a SaaS project or some form of productization project, but they won't give it attention or investment it deserves. And so it's kind of just done as another thing alongside their day-to-day work and they will get a lot of their internal people working on it sometimes, and it won't be a priority. It's not driven. And my advice on this, and I'd love to know what you think, what what your view would be, but my advice on this has always been to treat treat it as almost a separate investment. So whatever money, whatever profit you take as leaders in the firm, almost treat it as if someone had come up to you in the street and said, look, I've got this really sound investment idea. I've got a lot of internal knowledge. How about putting some money into this? And so you've almost got a separation, both sometimes physically where the work is occurring, but also psychologically. It's an investment project that needs to be run with specialists and thought about as something separate rather than something that's done alongside day work? Because I've just certainly I've seen it go wrong a lot of times. What are your insights or feelings on how to think about these types of projects?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely having a separate investment, seen as a separate investment, is the right thing to do. I think even more important than that is to have a product owner. Okay, yeah. business who it's their baby. And and yep. I think I've seen that work with Clients, I saw it work in our own in our own instance. We had somebody that had come up with the idea and we effectively backed it. Yep. So then you've got the investment, you carve out a team, ideally, and you you yep. make it a priority and, and you make that their day job. Yeah. And then you've got this product owner that's got not only the time and the investment, but yep. they've also got passion and the the fire in their belly to do it. So it's not seen as a peripheral secondary thing. It's like going, you run with this. I would say that's what I've seen at work. And also, there's, it doesn't have to be a massive investment. That first stage yep. it could be say, okay, yes. we're, we're going to try and get to this point and we've got three months to do it. And you yep. set yourself those limits and you know that it's not going to be perfect. You know that it's going to be creaky under the hood yep. <laughs> uh, from the tech standpoint, but you want to get to a proof point and then yep. you can make f- further investments. But I think if you set those guardrails and go, right, this is your budget, this is the team that are allocated to it, at least yep. a good chunk of their time, this is the product owner, gives it the best chance of, of being a success.
0: I think those are really good points. And it's obviously, or maybe not obviously to some of the listeners, but what I have seen happen a few times is the founder or leader will go out to, you know, they'll find a code on Upwork and say, look, this is my idea, they'll get them to build it. And then they realise they haven't really thought through the idea. And perhaps the person they've got isn't necessarily as dedicated as they would like. And the pro- it's a very easy way to burn through a lot of money if you're trying to get the perfect product initially. And I really like your point about going for a beta or an alpha. Before you launch anything, I
1: think that sort of that build it and they will come approach is is expensive. Yes and it's risk much higher risk we tried to launch so from within my own agency we tried to launch a few products over the years because we'd got it in our heads that we were going to do yep. this i was talking to someone about this the other day so what started out as just being right we need some ideas from within the business and we wanted to find that owner or we just knew that you know within our team there'd be more knowledge than just a, us as the sort of directors going yep. strategically think about it so we'd had a few false starts with things that we'd built that we thought would get traction yep. and The thing that ultimately did work, and we took it out to market and did it was very successful when it went to market, was it was a video personalization platform. And we effectively built very, very early alpha version of this technology, almost to the point where we called it more of a feasibility study. It was a technical feasibility. Can we do this thing that we couldn't see being done anywhere else? And so we just put an engineer on it with a product owner sort of driving what the functionality should be. But it was a case of going, you've got a really short space of time. We maybe gave him four weeks. Okay, wow. Um, We got to the point where we had this feasible... we said and it was a case of we know it works because we've got it working it's hanging together with all these different bits of technology it's not massively scalable i don't know how it will work at scale but we know it works and the next the first thing we did was we just put together a a beautiful deck (laughs) and went out to see some clients and said okay yeah yeah presented it like it was ready the interest and the clamor that we got from showing this really early um, proof of concept right convinced us to invest further. You know, we effectively, yeah. effectively closed our first deal with a major film studio before it was built.
0: Yep. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful lesson to so many times, especially when things have gone wrong. I have seen leaders say, I've got this great idea. And started to plow money into it. And then you ask the question, well, who have you spoken to? Who's gonna sell this? What do the clients think? And they'll say, Well, hold on, hold on. I'll get a prototype first. Yeah. And you can end up spending 50 grand on getting to prototype stage and then realize that no, not only is no one interested, but you don't have a mechanism necessarily for selling it to to the clients. I think that's a really important point. Okay, so let's get down to a bit more practical stuff. So if I'm a founder of a again 50 to 70 person firm, primarily people-based, um, I've got my CRM system, I've perhaps even got some software for managing projects, and my finances are all on zero or um, free agent. What are the obvious things that I should be looking at in this day and age, especially since um, you know since there's been so many developments over the last five years, what should I be looking at in terms of either automation or software?
1: Automation, obviously, there's loads of, yeah, lots of options out there that you can use. From an enterprise level, obviously, you've got things like ServiceNow, which is like automated workflows. If you're working more with sort of SaaS products within a boutique scenario, then um, you can use things like Zapier to make systems talk to each other to to maybe streamline some of those processes and automate those. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a case for, I see that as kind of dipping your toe in the water before you then go into something of,
0: Tim, let me just pause you there for a second because you've mentioned a couple of things there that I realize you're very familiar with. Some of our listeners may not be at the stage where they know what service now is or even know what a, an automated workflow So could you just talk a little bit around how that might work? I've got this company. We do fairly standard projects. They're not necessarily standardized, but we're at the stage now where we've got seven or eight services that we typically offer clients. And our back office is all relatively standardized, not necessarily as polished as it might be. What might automated workflows offer?
1: If we think about the simplest level it's a it's tools like zapier which or zapier which effectively is a sort of if this then that yep. coding so it's a no code platform but with some business logic you can say well if you know a really simple version of if we hit this date then we trigger this this email out to a client for a reminder or you know yep. it might be for a payment or something like that so it's very simple if this then that or it might be that you're taking data out of one system and putting it into a spreadsheet sort of do the number crunching so those type of simple if this then that type statements i think there's lots of systems out there that would allow you to do that so automating just parts of the workflow and certain elements will be ripe for automation certain elements will be well it's so nuanced that it's not right to do that or it'd be much more complex to do that and what's our simplest lowest hanging fruit The stuff that we do day in, day out that that I know I can automate because it's it's a repetitive task. That's always uh, the first place we'd start. And it's also the first place we'd start when we're building out a product for a client. What's the simplest stuff? Then you can focus the engineering on the complex.
0: Let's take an example. Like I see a bid. uh, Sorry, I I see an RFP that I like the look of. And there's a loose process that I've noticed over the years. It tends to be that I'll send it to Claire who's a partner, and say, should we go for this? Claire sends it back and says, yes, so I dig up some previous bid that I've sent in, draft it out, and then send it to a junior to finish. And then it might go two ways. We might get send it to the budgeting and resourcing person to look at pricing and people, and then we might send it to some form of review process. That type of document flow, is that the type of thing that would work quite well with workflow automation?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if you think about like project management tools, you know, they're very much built for that. So even things like Basecamp, which, you know, obviously is, is very well used in in the sort of small software engineering environments, and usually in smaller agency environments, um, those will have, you, know, you can effectively create templates. So what you're saying, so if I'm going to start up a new project, Which, you know, an RFP response would be one of those. Say, well, here are the templates that happen around that. And so there'll be a template based on these are the tasks that need to be fulfilled. These are the people who meet those requirements, fulfill those tasks. And so that's just a going, yeah, it's repeatable. And we know. And it's slightly different each time. So you go in and you have to tweak it, but you start with the, you know, you start with that. This is our process. And if on this occasion we're not going to send it to Claire, we're going to send it to John, then just go in and tweak that uh, in your automated process.
0: Okay, let's go a little bit further then and start talking about some productization of what we're doing. So there might be quite a few, six or seven services that I say, offer to clients. And if I think about the the typical consultancy lifecycle, there might be a bit of research takes place, perhaps some interviews, and then those interviews get analyzed. And then perhaps I might have some form of draft design, which might be a a process map or a workflow or a business case or whatever. And then there might be some form of presentation that comes out of that to the senior people. How do I go about thinking, and I might have some data that comes off the back of that, and I might have data that perhaps goes across many clients that I haven't ever thought about looking at as a whole. Where do I start as a business owner thinking about productization when i have perhaps all these opportunities perhaps don't know about them because i'm just used to dealing with people and and people-based services
1: yeah it's, it's i guess there's those things that are some things that are repeatable so common and across all consultancies that productizing almost doesn't make sense because it's like well everybody's doing it they've all got their own sort of way of doing it. And they're probably all automate, or you know, many will be automating to a certain extent because it's so it's so known. So then it's a case, of, well, are we potentially productizing into an already crowded space?
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Selling us something to so you know doing that due diligence of is anybody else doing this? Could I yeah, buy this? Okay. could I yeah. buy this off the shelf? Or could I buy it off the shelf with three or four different platforms? Sure. So, yep That's always the first place to look. And even when you're productizing, because sometimes it could be a case of the product itself could be the way in which you pull together multiple services and sure. yeah. so yeah you almost kind of have to break it down into its atomic parts yeah. and going into the multi-stage process some of which is data gathering some of which is data presentation some of which is recommendations and so yeah I think it's a case of can I can I automate part of that journey yeah. which at worst makes me more efficient at uh, best gives me a, an angle for a product. I'm trying to think of a good example because it's we've worked with a, a media agency in creating a platform that was very much based on predictions. So it's it's you know if you're about to go and spend money on a media campaign, it's like how do we yeah. predict where that campaign's going and it'll be based okay. on things that happen historically. We'll give you a sense of which direction it's going. You know, are things going off track, on track. Are we doing yeah, better? Okay. And that is a you know the data that you get historically is all there. Yep. but It's in different places, so you may be looking in different places for that information yep. as a human going in and actually looking at that. By spending some time doing that, you can get a sense of okay, I can see this is going off track because cost per acquisition is going up. But then, where that's going to go and, and how you predict that with any degree of confidence will come down to some sort of algorithmic analysis. So, say, okay, most likely to stay in this, the further out it goes, you know, you're, the less likelihood it's going to happen. But, um, so from that scenario, you again, you can imagine how using multiple systems, you could get to that point of finding finding out how a campaign is doing. And in that particular scenario, the the advice that we gave to that client when they first came to us with the idea was go away and do this on a spreadsheet. And there was, you could piece together different systems. There was a, a way to get data out in a sort of aggregated fashion through a third-party service provider. It was, you know, it was relatively expensive, but not as expensive as building something yourself. So it's like yeah. to pay them three months' worth of license fees to learn then you know it's, it's only cost you a $1000 versus tens of thousands of dollars sure. you can start to see how a product would develop out of that because you're you're still doing the heavy lifting you're still having to interact with it it's not automated it's not truly automated but it is elements of the journey are automated so your data gathering becomes automated so yeah i think that's the first place to look is what things can we do now today
0: and as you were talking a lot of what you were saying made me think about reporting So obviously, in a large professional service firm, you kind of have a a cadence of reporting, and there's data coming from lots of different sources. But if you're in a boutique, and I've seen, you know, I see this very, very often. A lot of boutiques will have a spreadsheet here; they'll have a PDF coming from somewhere else; they'll have a a semi-automated system that's generating some form of data. And the seniors spend a lot of time getting this data together, putting it in the right format. And then presenting it to the board and the board might come back and say, well, actually, I want a bit more detail on this. What types of solutions are available there for the busy partner that has or CEO that has responsibility for getting all this data from different places and presenting it relatively coherently to a board?
1: Well, obviously, you've got data visualization platforms like Microsoft's Power BI or Tableau and things like that, which obviously are well used, especially in enterprise, well used to create those sort of data dashboards. I would say kind of underneath that, you've also got the likes of uh, Airtable, which is, you know, again, for a boutique SaaS platform, It's you know, effectively it's a like an online spreadsheet, but got some elements of database. So you've got this central repository, because I think that's the... The the problem you have with the more traditional flow is that data is coming in from all different places, probably crunching it somewhere in a spreadsheet, and then they're creating a PowerPoint. And so everything is, it's very linear. And then it's like, okay, you'll get another report in a month's time. But if that actually midway through the month, I want to know how things are tracking, having that sort of always on the discipline of doing that in an online system versus doing it offline sort of end user spreadsheet. I think that's the other thing it comes down to really is the discipline to use those tools versus. Yes. And we see, you know, I think spreadsheets are classic for that, even in massive businesses. And one of the businesses I've worked with over the last couple of years was exactly that. It was a sort of spreadsheet killer, if you like, within okay. enterprises. So trying to remove large, complex, critical, business critical processes off of spreadsheets because it's obviously inherently um fraught with issues both in terms of somebody puts in the wrong calculation there's been plenty horror stories of that you know yes
0: yes i i have been responsible for one myself tim (laughs) um (laughs) if ever you want a market to expand into i can highly recommend universities they are typically 20 years behind on their use of data and i'm sure Will my university mind me saying this? But I was sent a spreadsheet, which to be fair to me, the people that had sent it to me had hidden the data on it. And so I didn't see it. And I gave it to my assistant to send out to students. And the students very quickly worked out that there was hidden data on it and revealed it. And it was um, it created tricky times for us, (laughs) especially me. And I see that, you know, I'm an external examiner at many universities. So I I think there's a, aside from consultancy, there's a huge market there for you.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, that particular business that I've been working with largely focused on the financial sector.
0: Okay. Uh, Oh, God, right. uh,
1: Even in large international banking environments, you've still got a lot of things being done on spreadsheet. So, yeah, I think that's that discipline to do things online, do things through a system and make it as easy as possible. I think that's the other side of it. So the big part of of any adoption. So if you're going to roll out any system, it's about adoption, isn't it? Because you, know, yes. you can build the yes. most beautiful product in the world. And again, that's why getting a beta version out as early as possible, testing with, this was kind of the angle that we took with that media agency in terms of, do it in a spreadsheet, do it for yourself. And if it improves your management of those campaigns, just by following this process, that's one win. Then share that spreadsheet with two other people in your business They come back and say, great, this has improved my campaigns. Then you're just getting those proof points. And it's in a very low cost, low risk way. And it just gives you that I can now make the next investment. The worst thing is going away, creating something and then nobody really uses it because like everybody's like, well, I kind of do it slightly differently and I don't want to be forced down this route. And that's yes, what, yes. why people end up going back to spreadsheets they're saying, well, I know all the data's there in this system that you've created. Yep. But I'm just going to download a CSV and go yep, and yep. it somewhere else offline because that's what I'm used to working with. So it's, yeah, how do you make it as easy as possible for people to adopt yeah. and, and valuable enough for people to adopt.
0: Uh, talking of simplicity, I don't know if it was you that did it, but it might have been someone you worked with. But I remember at three when we were designing, you know, never seen before applications for the third generation of mobile phones. And they were planning on spending an absolute fortune on various bits of software to mock things up. And some bright spark said, well, we can do this in PowerPoint. And effectively, just mocked up the UX or CX, as it would be called now, on PowerPoint, everything was hyperlinked. And it saved hundreds of thousands. I'm guessing that's your doing things, I don't mean via PowerPoint, but rather than paying coders hundreds of thousands of pounds there's cheaper and quicker ways to do things sometimes
1: yeah i think um yeah there was lots of that i, I, I wasn't involved in that particular one but i can remember we did some stuff at three that was a similar thing where we saved them a lot of money by using a different process for a recommendation engine actually that was a yeah. but yeah i think yes powerpoint's not going to be or, or any of those sort of end user applications those sort of you know personal applications they're never going to be scalable To a certain extent, you're also, you have that with no code as well. So I think, you know, a lot of enterprises, obviously are adopting no code, but what they're effectively doing is saying, well, let's use this no code solution versus using a spreadsheet or versus, you know, you go back even further, people are using like Lotus Notes to to build. So, you know, that you're effectively giving them better tools, ideally have been, you know, IT approved and and easier to manage from that point of view, but you still end up with is that you give them all the freedom in the world, you know, uh, if you can, if you can give these sort of citizen developers all the freedom to create, then you'll end up with quite a lot of disparate solutions. I think that's still, there's a scaling issue with, but it's great for doing that initial proof point. Let's see if we can piece together a process using some no-code solutions that just, prove that that it's going to be valuable and then low code is that nice sort of in between stage where you get some engineering buy-in but you also get the engineering discipline which is a case of you know you can't get every citizen developer in there that can go and change things like the, the spreadsheet example of unhiding cells or, or whatever it might be it's like okay if there's certain data that we want to lock down we can do that because we've got engineering process around the implementation of a low code solution but obviously allows you to shortcut a lot of other areas
0: the no-code, low-code thing is I've not used... I've In the past, I've gone straight to coders because I didn't... Why is that? I was, I guess, a bit scared that the no-code or low-code wouldn't provide me with what I wanted. That was based on ignorance rather than knowledge, or fear rather than knowledge. How capable are low-code and no-code solutions at creating relatively quick, relatively effective solutions for common challenges that a business owner might have.
1: I think absolutely. I think a no-code solution in the hands of somebody that is knows how to use it and is confident. Okay. To we often talk about the spreadsheet jockey, and it often it, it's yeah. it's the same it's it's the same process really. In terms of oftentimes, and when you know when we're working in those sort of banking environments, and you go in and you find some spreadsheet that was the effectively it was a system spreadsheet as a system. It'd been created typically by a, an external consultant. Because they come in with all the knowledge, knew mm. how to knew how to create all the macros and, and and create this kind of amazing spreadsheet. But then they exit the building and nobody mm. knows how to change it. And nobody's <laughs> yes. scared to death to change it because they're going, well, this crucial process over here hangs off it. I see no code in a similar vein in terms of the right person with the right understands the business process, understands how to use the tools to create that and automate that to a certain extent, can do that. But again, the knowledge tends to be held within quite small, or singular. I think it's it's the same with things like you see it with AI, that ultimately the best use of AI is when the person that's prompting it knows what they're doing. So I think the same sort of applies really for no code that yeah, you really need somebody in there that knows how it works, how to get the most out of it, but they don't have to be technical, they don't have to get into the code.
0: Yeah. I guess I've seen I've seen the whole range. So I've seen companies that started off as consultancies and are now SaaS firms. So they realized halfway through the process, they've got their, their real asset with their data. And so they flipped completely to, in effect, offering data initially with them as the interface between the clients but eventually as self-serve so kind of flip the company that to me seems quite rare i've seen two instances of it over the last five years what i see more common is as you started off with is consultancies seeing they're doing the same things again and looking for a solution for that i think a lot of consultancies are looking over their shoulder at competitors who are productizing what they're doing and thereby saving costs and sometimes improving quality, sometimes offering clients capabilities that they might might not have. But I think part of this mix is AI and you brought it up. I'm obviously very interested in it at the moment. Um, how does AI fit into this mix? Um, because it seems from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of firms using it for tasks, not strategically, not systemically, but to be a consultant who's doing a workshop, they'll think, well, what can AI come up with or finish this blog post or finish this report? I haven't seen many use cases, or I have seen two or three, but I haven't seen many use cases where it's sort of more of a strategic investment by the firm. What are you seeing on your side?
1: I think that sort of parallel pathing with AI is I'm seeing a lot. So as you say you know helping with tasks it's I'm doing this thing anyway it's going to work faster if I've got AI yep. doing elements of it you know we use it within our teams at action the engineering team have been using it for a long time so sort of completing some of the coding and or you know suggesting what the what the code should be for a certain for a certain interaction and things like that mm-hmm. senior engineer gets it uses it knows when it's made a mistake and fixes it junior engineers it's dangerous it's a dangerous thing because they don't spot the they're not experienced enough to spot and things like testing and qa that obviously is setting up automated tests of websites and apps and things like that then it's really good at writing test scripts and ai is great at that because again it's yeah. fairly uh repeatable stuff so yeah i think that's i think everybody should be using it you know i'm, yeah. I'm saying my kids at school you know doing gcses and a levels you've got to do it you've got to yeah. use it you, know, you can get left behind, and 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 although it's sort of frowned upon, obviously from the point of view of education, I'm like you need to know your subject. Mm. But you still need to learn what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. But get it to write your first draft. Get it to, if you're revising. Get it to write your flashcards um, yeah. and things like that because it's just it's a it's a, um, a time saver in terms of more. A lot of the businesses that we work with and I work with are very much you know it's process driven. You know, building out systems to support a process. So AI again because everybody wants to know. It's the question everybody's asking and saying, yes, I, I spoke to someone yesterday I said, it's like the and finally question on every call I go on to. It's like, you know, the final story, news <laughs> yes. round, you know, so everybody's like and finally, what are you doing with AI? You yes, yes. speaking to be a potential client and I would say that you need to be looking at it from the point of view of, yes, if you're working with lots of data, then start looking at how AI interprets that and but run it in parallel. You don't necessarily need to integrate it fully into the <laughs> system yet. And we're doing that with a couple of clients at the moment where we are taking data sets that they're working with running them through some language models to maybe analyze some analyze text for, for context and information and then we might create something like a what you call like an ai workbench so it's an area where they can go in and actually analyze what's happening and spot where it's gone wrong and maybe tell it where it's gone wrong so that's like saying well you can expose your data to these systems and i think that's going to become even more prevalent because there's been obviously a concern about exposing data to them because of the privacy yeah. But that's now being sold. So OpenAI have now announced this sort of—they're called uh, GPTs, private versions of ChatGPT. So for yes. anything, they can have it in-house, which I think is really the right thing to do because you mm. can do it in banking and pharmaceuticals and what well, anything where you you know you've got secretive secret content and or highly sensitive content. So I think you are going to see it being used more and more. So I would just say to yeah anybody that's in any industry, quite frankly, yeah, yes, I agree should be running it in parallel and seeing how it how it performs and how it can improve your own workflows and or your own productivity. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly powerful as a sort of anecdotally a good friend who's a child psychologist quite high up in what she does and often speaks at conferences and and things like that about the subject matter that she's expert in and we were at a dinner party recently and and she was sort of asking about ai and chat gpt and mentioned that she'd got a big conference coming up and she'd got to write 30 minute presentation she said you know so she's always always the hardest thing is sitting down and getting that first draft because i just need to you know be disciplined and clear a sunday afternoon and i'll go and lock myself in my study and do it and we flippantly over the dinner table said you know why don't you what's the subject and she sort of read out this login and set out this long complicated subject plugged it into chat GPT and she was just blown away and this mm. is very top of her game, was blown away by the first draft that it came back with. And she was like, that's probably saved me four hours. It's (laughs) incredible. Whether it's quite the the Elon Musk sort of state of killing us all off and chasing us up trees and things, I think, you know, that's I'm probably more on the side of it should make us more efficient, more effective, and hopefully give us more time for doing the things we enjoy versus um, doing the things that take up time that don't necessarily need to. Yeah, I think that's my only... My main advice is, yeah, just you've got to work with it and see how it applies.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for experimentation, isn't there? And I know experimentation takes time, but there's a lot that can be done with AI just simply by practicing prompts. You know, put put one prompt in. If that doesn't work, add something, take something out. Keep playing with it till you're happy. And especially now the context windows are so huge that you can actually you can provide very detailed prompts and lots of resources, especially with these um, GPTs, which is an awful name, by the way, yeah. Yeah. Um, but these personal bots that we can create now. I'm guessing
1: it's going into through- controls as well. That the, the interesting thing about that is the control of the data set that goes in. So, if you, I'm, I'm speaking to another business actually in the education space. So, this would be interesting from a university point of view. So, mm. as an assistant to students, it could be that actually there's, yes, there's a, a vast array of information that they could draw upon, whether it's about things to do locally access to certain things through the university, things to do with their subjects. You could control the data set that informs that bot. That means that, you know, they can ask it anything. It, it, reduce, it means they don't have to go trawling through document after document to find yep. that information. I think that's the thing that again is really powerful that if you can say well actually within this context you need to know this information and i don't want to be because the problem with it being totally open is the hallucinations things that didn't happen and because it sort of you know creates a story based on information it's found here and saying well this is the most likely outcome or i'll tell you that but actually that isn't the real truth so i think you know the the control that that will come with it in terms of you know both in terms of how it needs to be controlled and needs mm-hmm. to from a governmental and just societal point of view, but also from the point of view of going actually I'm, I need to know that in this context what I'm getting back is based on you know based on information that I that I trust and rely on and mm-hmm. you know, I see it as being very, you know, very powerful for that. And
0: it's not really the focus of the podcast, but you're a bright guy that's immersed in this area. So I'd love to know your view on it. One thing that worries me is that at the moment, Chat GPT four Plus or Turbo, whichever ac- version you've got access to, with very little training, will provide an answer to most business questions that a that an analyst or a junior consultant would. I have no doubt in a year or two that it will get to the consultant, perhaps even senior consultant level, especially if you have put some of your own data and some of your own content into either vector bases, uh, vector databases, or have fine-tuned the software. This also applies to students. I'm encouraging my students to use it. But what happens to that critical thinking that allows you to know whether or not something is wrong, or could be improved, or it's got the wrong end of the stick? I'm thinking, you know, it'd be so easy now for a junior consultant to save themselves a day a week by plugging stuff in, content comes out, great, present it. As gpt 4 becomes. GPT 5, 6, 7, whatever, it gets better and better. And in five years' time, perhaps you've got a a senior consultant or even a principal consultant who, or a student at the university, who has produced very good stuff and the clients are reasonably happy with it, but hasn't ever had to write a report themselves or never had to write an essay from beginning to end. And therefore, maybe I'm just sounding old, therefore, can't spot Weaknesses and haven't got that level of critical thinking. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's um because part of me, I think you know, for those sort of junior level roles, and and certainly you look at junior lawyers. You know, mm. that's, you just mm. think there's a, and I think you know, it's, it's it's been widely reported. You know, when you look at the sort of jobs that are most at threat, lawyers is pretty close to the top of the list on research and finding precedents and. That can be done by AI in seconds. So, yeah, again, going back to my kids, you know, you worry about what the future is for them and how they form their careers, whichever way they go. I'm I'm trying to encourage them to go into the creative industries for that reason. But I think consultancies and and you know similar to the work that i do i maybe i'm just being blinkered to it and, and trying to sort of convince myself that i'm going to be useful in five years time but i think it's still a people business it's still about there's the nuance of conversation that happens between humans i was again i was speaking to an education business yesterday who works with they do like careers advice within schools and and, and that's part of what they do but you know they were saying obviously, somebody can go and plug in information, you know, a child can go to chat GPT and, and get careers advice. I said, yeah, but it's not about the advice, really. It's about the ability of the advisor to extract the information from that child yeah. is going to give them a sense of actually, what do you really want to do? So it's a yep. it the prompt, it's like, if you don't know how to prompt it, and sometimes you need somebody there to be coaching you really mm. to the information out of you and i think you know consultancies are in a similar position whereby it's the your end client is really how do you coach the information Definitely. out? Of to make sure that what you then deliver meets their needs but also it meets their kind of meets the needs of the business but also meets the needs of them as a person in the same way as we talk about adoption you know if we talk about adoption of technology it's you've got to understand the human side of that because yes you can put together the most perfect system in the world yeah adopt it because they'd rather do it the way they've always done it they, you know there's other, yes. other they, won't, they won't change but it's only through the coaching and the human side where you can understand what those things are and you can find those pain points
0: yes i think that's a very good insight and i think there's lessons there for business schools consultancies your friend the child psychologist that actually this I guess it's going back to the old consultancy thing that the skills that really matter are the interpersonal skills, communication, persuasion, the stuff that AI is going to be. you know, Technically, I'm sure there's no reason why it can't do it, but emotionally engaging with the person is still, fortunately, <laughs> our default preference, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. And I think, I guess, bringing it back to that sort of software development we started talking about mm-hmm. really in product development and a lot of the work that I do personally, and a lot of the, the way that I try to encourage our technical team in particular, it's more of the human side of, you know, if, if a client asks you a question or asks for a certain piece of functionality, it's a really understanding the why behind that. Yep. yep okay. Is that really what you're asking for? If you're making a technical decision or you're making a, a request around a certain piece of functionality, you've got to understand the motivation for that because it might be that they don't have enough knowledge about the technology to ask yep. for the right and it might be that actually when you boil it down and get to the root cause of why they've asked for it it could be something totally different and so there's yeah the the, the human side is i think you know is, is right for everybody you know and software engineers are probably that classic of being they'll deal with what's in front of them they can deal with a problem and they'll they'll work in the code and maybe not so much on the human side and when you find the ones that that can span that then they typically are the ones that rise to the sort of cto levels
0: yeah thank you tim how can listeners find out
1: more about you and Actioned? well Actioned is yeah action spelt with an x so it's a x i o n e d uh, so yeah obviously there's a website and me um LinkedIn. I'm not a massive social media user, so I've not got an active Twitter feed or anything like that. X feed, should I say? And but yeah, you know, find me on, link, on LinkedIn, Tim Redgate. There's not many Tim Redgates in the world, so I'm quite easy.
0: I'll put all the links in the show notes, and also to the Zapier, ServiceNow, Basecamp, and Airtable systems that you've mentioned. So I'll put them in as well.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they would just yeah. There's there's loads more, but uh, they were the ones that sort of off the top of my head. But yeah, happy to follow up and if anybody's got questions absolutely
0: brilliant thanks for your time tim
1: thanks joe good to speak good to see you
0: take care as ever thank you for listening to the consultancy growth podcast this is professor joe omarney at dot